Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And who better to ask about our coordinates on the landscape of possible moments, that crystalline eternity of relative pasts and futures, than a PhD in the philosophy of time, my friend Carrie Welch, a lecturer at the California Institute of Integral Studies, whose upcoming book, The Texture of Time, explores time as a fractal informed by the developmental psychology work of Jean Gebser, as well as recent brain research into the neurobiology of time perception. Totally engaging, fascinating person with a lot of unique insights into everything from synchronicity and precognition to the ancient fate versus free will debate, as well as really valuable perspectives on how our sense of time is changing due to the overstimulation of our digital environments. Every new episode of this show is exciting to me, but this one is especially exciting because I feel that it gets to the heart of what this show is really all about, which is locating ourselves in eternity and understanding how to steer the human story toward realities that all of us would actually want to live in. We go super deep and it's an extra long conversation, but I didn't want to break it up into two episodes because it's just so good. I wanted to give it to you all at once. But first, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who has recently signed up to be a supporter of this podcast and of my work in general on Patreon, facilitating empowering conversations about the future and restoring soul and humanity to the practice of futurism in an age where what it means to be a human being is under direct assault from the computational totalism of our post-industrial consumer culture. It would be a lot easier to make a living just ranting about how we're all going to turn into gods than it is trying to encourage a cautious and compassionate harm reduction inspired approach to our increasingly psychedelic internet ecosystem. But here we are, and thank you from the bottom of my heart to all 73 people who are supporting this show with a small monthly donation to five, ten bucks, and reminding me that this is not just about the unborn audience of future digital archaeologists, but about addressing the needs of those of us alive today, trying to make sense of this turbulent situation. Shout out to Lauren, Liz, and Nico, all of the new patrons this week. And a request to everyone listening to the show who believes in the value and importance of these conversations. I'm trying to make it to 100 Patreon supporters by the end of the year. It's a modest goal that's just 27 more people. And I'm doing everything I can to make it worth so much more than you're contributing to be a part of this. Including a number of Patreon-exclusive podcast episodes, starting with a recently released conversation with my friend astrologer Adam Summer about what the planetary archetypes and their celestial dance have to teach us about the reconciliation of masculine and feminine in the years to come. Also, the talk that I gave at MoogFest 2016 on live looping and electronic music 
as a performance of esoteric knowledge and an alchemical marriage of the time-bound and eternal dimensions of the artist and audience. And next week, I'll release the text and audio for an excerpt from my upcoming book, How to Live in the Future, on a world in which computer-assisted forgery has made it utterly impossible for us to agree on facts and empirical reality. What comes next? How do we find our way in these ambiguous futures? This piece that I will release to Patreon supporters next week is a work of short experimental science fiction told in a kind of fireside storytelling format of what it was like to live through an age where we watched reality fall apart around us and built something new in its place. So if you're interested in that, head on over to Future Fossils podcast at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and sign up and you will become the object of my profound and lasting adoration. Just like all of the people who have been subscribing and rating this show on iTunes. It's time to take this message to a wider audience and I am deeply, deeply grateful to everyone of you who's helping me do that. So, thank you. And with that, I am excited to introduce you to Dr. Carrie Welch. Yeah, so you're one of the only people I know that I can actually have on this show to talk about time as an object and not just our relationship to time, like to talk about time as a cultural construct and you or a psychological uh, phenomenon. And so you're somebody I've wanted on the show for a while, and so I'm glad that you're here. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we start by talking about your background at CIS and beyond, and why it's fair to call you an authority in this area, <laughs> whatever that means these days. Yeah. Uh, well, I earned my PhD from CIS, California Institute of Integral Studies, in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program, and did my MA in that same program. Um, finished the PhD in, in 2010 and did my graduate work dissertation on a fractal model of time. So specifically looking at what are all the different ways we experience time, what does physics tell us about time, all the different things, all the different descriptions it gives us, um, and how can we bridge those two. And fractals presented a really nice model that kind of accommodated for many of the diversity of experiences and diversity of descriptions. Um, since then, I've been teaching at CIIS and uh, the University of Phoenix and now at uh, Integrity Academy at Casa de Luz Center for Integral Studies in Austin um, and continuing to write and working on turning the dissertation into a more popular level book uh, called The Texture of Time. Uh, a narrative nonfiction approach to uh, the science of temporal perception. 
So why would you choose a narrative modality for a book about fractal time? <laughs> because, as you might suspect, it's a very abstract topic. Right. Um, and so to ground it in human experience makes it more accessible, gives people a handhold, gives it... Uh, I mean, the title of the book is The Texture of Time, right? So it's really about what our experience is. How do we feel it? And... To, you know, you, you can do that in abstract scientific language, but it's going to lose a lot of people, whereas everybody has a wide variety of experiences of time and connect, can connect to that. And frankly, it's uh, more fun to write. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on a piece of vaguely narrative experimental science fiction right now, exploring what happens when our current representation of time is largely based on or dependent on our immersion in a particular media environment, you know, and like the way, like with writing a book, you know, like you, you relate to a narrative format because the book itself is written as a single line of text from beginning to end, right? Kind of. Yeah, sort of. Kind of. The, the process has felt more like kneading bread, mm. like pulling a chunk up and then being like, no, this chunk actually doesn't belong on this side. It needs to fold over and go over here, but then that rearranges all the other connections. Yeah. <laughs> and well, the continual yeah. folding and folding and folding of like which part of the story wants to be where, which abstract part wants to hook in where. That's interesting because one of the the things that I've been reflecting on in terms of fractals, right, is the Baker's transformation huh. in, in math, you know, which is where you take, uh, you draw a line and you draw two points on that line and they're a specific distance from each other and you've measured that distance and then if you take that line you fold it over itself and then you stretch it to its you know back to the original length and then you fold it again and you do that every time you execute that transformation your initial measurement error doubles so it's a way of describing in a more uh-huh. concrete way uh, this thing with like the butterfly effect and how people assume that the butterfly effect means that all of us, however insignificant, have this like huge role to play. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Lawrence and a lot of the original chaos theorists meant it kind of in the inverse. That they what they were saying was that that you cannot predict deterministic behavior in a, in a complex system because. As that system rolls on from T0 down, you know, as it iterates, your initial measurement errors just compound and multiply. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and it's the, in, in your, where you said the initial measurement error, I mean, it's the coastline paradox, right? It's what the, what's the size of your measuring stick. You know, if you if you measure the coastline of Britain with a mile-long measuring stick, you're going to get one measurement, but you're going to gloss over a lot of the nitty-gritty inlets and uh, peninsulas and stuff like that. Whereas if you measure it with an inch-long measuring stick, you're going to get a much longer measure of the coastline. So it's not like the coastline is a, is a set measurement. The perimeter of the island is not a set distance. It's going to change depending upon how you measure it. And so it's kind of the same idea, right? And it's and it, because it's part of chaos theory, right? Mm-hmm. And so these ideas are all kind of reflecting each other and showing that we just actually can't get precise enough to bring the level of predictability that physics once thought it could. Yeah, it's interesting this thing about you, you know, you're saying that the process of writing 
a linear volume is itself very nonlinear. Yes. Because, you know, like the only person I know that's actually written a book from beginning to end is Tom Robbins. Like, apparently that's how he writes all of his oh, words. He writes, he just puts one word in front of another until it's done. Huh. But you look at, on the reading end of those books, those books are fantastically nonlinear. There's yes. like, it's very difficult to extract a, a coherent plot yeah. from that. So it's, it's funny how, you know, comparing that to your report of like a, a nonlinear you know, like you have, you're sort of forced into a nonlinear approach in order to make it seem linear and coherent. That that's uh, that's almost like a conservation of energy type yeah. issue. Well, well, and it kind of goes into the the theme that you were wanting to get at, which was like, what is the future of time? How is our experience of time changing, and what is it going to look like in the future? And I kind of feel like that's part of it, like. Being more open to the organic emergence of what is happening in the moment as opposed to the planning mentality, which has has been kind of the, the dominant mentality for a while or, or the strive to <laughs> uh, dominant mentality. And in the book I'm writing, I talk about it in two different ways because fractals. One common definition of them has to do with their self-similarity. So the same pattern showing up at a macro scale as shows up at a micro scale and across many levels of scale. So this mirroring, this dilation of pattern across scale. Um, but that isn't, all fractals are not necessarily self-similar, but they are, are all non-differentiable, which just means you never know exactly where they're going given one point. (laughs) Um, So if something's differentiable, it's predictable. If something's non-differentiable, it's non-predictable. It's a a point of inflection on a graph. So if you think about just like a straight line coming down in a graph, you know, that slope makes it predictable. You know, based on what this point was in relation to the point before it, where the next point's going to go. But as soon as that line changes direction, you've hit a point, that point where it changes direction is a non-differentiable point because it's a point of flux of change. Um, And so the idea with fractals is, is that every point in the fractal is a point of change, is a point of flux. So Mm. the more you zoom in, the more likely you are to find that fluctuation point. And you can't zoom in enough to ever find a straight line, basically. Um, And this often emerges as a property of self-similarity because if you're layering these patterns into one another, they're all interfering with with each other in a way such that you get a non-differentiable pattern. But the way that that layers onto experience is that I tend to think of people, I kind of put people in the category. Some people are differentiable and some people are (laughs) non-differentiable, you know? Like, some people are more willing to coarse grain their lives, Uh like to make the planning, to measure with a long measuring stick, to gloss over every little tiny thing that's going to come up and get in their way to try to delay them from being somewhere at the right time, right? They're going to be there no matter what. Uh, They have a very strong brain stem, just tuning it out. Yeah, something. I don't know. (laughs) Or forebrain. You know? No peripheral vision. Yeah. They're just on it. Exactly. Yeah. And whereas there are people who are like, well, I don't really want to commit to anything because I don't know what's going to come up between now and then. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be drawn in this direction or that direction or if I can actually follow through with that. Or maybe they'll try to accommodate the world of planning and say, I'm going to be there. But then somebody calls and something comes up, you know, and life takes its own circuitous path. 
And I kind of feel like we're we're moving, particularly with the influx of technology, into a more non-differentiable uh, mindset, just in that before cell phones, if you plan to meet somebody somewhere at some time, <laughs> you know, like, you had to be there or you'd miss it. <laughs> but with cell phones, we have the flexibility to call and be like, hey, I'm going to be late. Or, hey, I'm actually over here. Hey, I can, I'm right around behind this tree. Can you meet me over here instead, you know? Um, so it can happen more on the fly, and we don't have to get locked into these... Uh, coarse-grained, ignoring all the tiny fluctuations that happen over the course of a life um, or an hour <laughs> mm. um, that, that are calling us in different directions. I heard on the Note to Self podcast that, and this, you know, this is not like a thing that I, I think is fact-checkable. This is a thing that's just like intuitively obvious that 20 years ago, the only people who were interrupted as frequently as everyone with a smartphone is interrupted today are uh, those people were air traffic control operators and emergency response dispatchers. Yeah. And, like, that, that mode of constant interruption attending to whatever comes up is now normal that's yeah. the normal mode and yeah. so we're in it we're that's part of this experience of being constantly overstimulated that's a great point but i also think about that in terms of there's a more kind of mystical angle on mm-hmm. technology that i encountered first through william Irwin thompson's book coming into being and I know Bill's taught at CIS. I don't know if you've ever Mm-mm. worked with him or met him, but he uh, he was comparing what's going on now to the this prophecy in the Rig Veda <laughs> that talks about how once upon a time the animals and the humans teamed up and ejected the spirits out of our mundane reality. Mm. But that through... That eventually a window would open and they would come back in. And mm. that there's this, this like, in his mind, a very literal sense in which the bodies that we are building, the, the, the computers, the, these like very uh, information and energy intensive processors are sort of like the clay feet that these genies and ghouls of various kinds can step into and then emerge through the magic mirror of our computer screens into the modern life. And in in that kind of a sense, all of us that are more peripherally aware and stimulated through constant notifications are approaching this schizotypal neuro mode that is associated with people who are like essentially functionally nuts like that are uh, you know your artists and so on that they found that artists tend to have a harder time screening out information than your like accountants and mm-hmm. surgeons and stuff mm-hmm. and so it's like it, it almost feels like there's a shift toward the this sort of uh yeah, like a synchronicity mindset and a like our like our, our neural wiring patterns are adapting to living in this highly densely networked mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. And it you know, from the perspective of someone alive fifty years ago, it's making us all crazy. Yeah. 
but it's actually bringing us into an experience of time that is itself networked and like you're saying uh, undifferentiable yeah that it's actually more suited to the like narrative collapse of a digital environment yeah yeah so many points of connection in there um, that's a problem right yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly um because on one, the, the Rig Veda prophecy that you mentioned, the, the kind of removal of the spirits, I mean, to me was just like, oh, the disenchantment of the modern Western world, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the decline of religion, the dec- like, and of spirituality. Frankly, you know, there may be a resurgence of spirituality, but not religion, but how much of that is really actually cultivated in people's daily lives? You know, not a whole lot. We're trying, but it's still pretty slim on the margins, I have a feeling. And so there's this sense of the, the, the disenchantment enchantment that happens with the the focus of individuality and then the, the opening back up from that like the individuality brings us some gifts and then the opening up brings us gifts too it, kind of the lens through I'm, that I'm looking through a lot of things lately is uh, Jean Getzer's mm-hmm. Structures of Consciousness uh, it starts with the archaic um, and, and some work I'm doing right now is just they layer his structures of consciousness layer so nicely onto EEG states. Really? Yeah, I mean, just like perfect. Let's, let's talk about this because I doubt most people aware or like listening right now are are like familiar with the Gebser model. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to yeah. run us, run us and, down it, and it actually helps to, to mirror it onto the EEG states because that's something that we have experience of. Um, Gebser's model is specifically an evolution of consciousness model. So he's saying we go through these five structures of consciousness from the archaic to the magical to the mythical to the mental, and the, which we're in mostly right now is the mental and moving into the integral. EEG states, on the other hand, are the structures that we move through developmentally and that we go through all of them in the course of one day. And so babies are predominantly in a delta brainwave state, which is what adults experience only in deep sleep. Total no consciousness, non-differentiation, gone. Sorry, parents. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but it's also beautiful, right? They're giving up their sleep with a new baby, but... In the brainwave entrainment that happens in any interaction with a being, every time you're holding a baby that's in a delta brainwave state, you're getting a little delta hit. Hmm. Yeah. You know, like the process of raising a child is a so the so the children move. They're gradually layering in higher frequency brainwave states. So the delta brainwave state is the long, slow waves, right? One zero to to four beats per second. Um, next brainwave state is a theta brainwave state, which is very young children, uh, and we experience in the hypnagogic stage when you're just falling asleep and characters and auditory hallucinations are like popping into your brain as if from nowhere, um, and that's also. It's the three to seven hertz beats per second shamanic drumbeat. Or when you're trying to get the baby to calm down. Yeah. Interesting. But that drive and the shamanic drumbeat drives the theta brainwave state entrainment. So you can be sit sink down into an imaginal reality that children are already in. So when they have their imaginary friends hanging out with them, like they're in a dream state. They're living in a dream state. You know, that totally makes sense for where they're at. And there's time is one dimensional there. 
mm-hmm. you know, and get and get and say, here's where the models merge, right? Gibson talks about the difference, the dimensionality of time as you move through the structures. And for him, the magical structure of consciousness is, is one-dimensional time. It's purely present moment. No past, future, no abstract other than now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a synchronistic place to be. Things, meaning is associated by things that arise together, basically, in the moment, that's, rather than linear the, causal. The brain starts recognizing and deploying symbolic thinking at this stage, right? Because you're So symbolic thinking, uh-huh. I would place more in the uh, mythical structure of okay. consciousness because then you're really separating out the here and the not here. And the not here is the abstract symbolic. Okay, because I'm thinking of like, uh, what is it? This is a secondhand source when it comes to Gesser, but, you know, like uh, Ken Wilber's writing, and he was talking about, you know, the magical consciousness as where you find stuff like voodoo, where the doll yes. equals the person. Yeah. Or like, the, you know, the, that's kind yeah. of the assumption of cave painting yeah. for a well, lot because, of people. Because there's no, uh, in, in the same way that time is only one-dimensional, identity is totally diffuse. Mm-hmm. The boundaries of identity are not as hardly held as, as held as firmly, and so just like a child, you know, some an adult might have a childhood memory of something that they swear happened to them, but really it happened to their sibling. Totally, I had that thought um, for years. I was certain that I'd ridden in a helicopter. And then, like, as a teenager, I talked to my dad about it, and my dad would have been there for any trip that I would have been on a helicopter. And he's like, no, that's never happened. I was like, I think I just watched Jurassic Park a lot when I was a kid. And there's, like, the helicopter scene in that movie, and it just mm-hmm. transferred. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? or, yeah, because you were so in tune. Like, your self-identity boundaries weren't firm enough to, like, be like, oh, that's somebody that's I'm actually just watching a movie. You were really experiencing it. And the structures of consciousness are nice because they're... Our current structure of consciousness, the mental, wants to disregard the magical, the mythical, and the archaic, right? Who pays attention to their dreams? I mean, we do, of course, but <laughs> many people don't pay any attention to their dreams and are totally disregarding religion, which is, lives in the mythical structure of consciousness. The mental consciousness is all about science, all about either or, you know, analysis, divide and conquer, disenchantment, right? That's how this ties into that previous conversation, right? right. That's the structure of consciousness that we're in. We're like the 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 firming of the individual psyche by cutting everything else away that you know champion of individualism which is also the shadow side of which is the alienation um you know and so as those structures start to break down as the mental transitions to the integral and it's being broken down by technology by the interconnectedness of things all of a sudden becoming very present to us through our phones and every in the present moment I mean, I don't, I don't know what else I can add to that. So, this on this disenchantment, I think it's like we got to circle back and hit the mythic, right? Yeah, Cause we, yeah cause, exactly. We jumped ahead. Yeah, because there's the there's you know growing out of the like learning to make associations, learning to make connections and metaphors in the magical, right? So that's I, w- yeah. I would still put it in. I, I would put metaphor in the mythic, okay? Because that's when you start getting myth, and that's okay. where the metaphor comes in, right? In the magical, it's very real. Mm. Like this is that. There's right. no difference. You're not There's able no to take a symbol. On it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas evolving into the mythical. The, the mythical is where religion lives, is where there's a, a differentiation between what is imminent 
and what is transcendent. So the symbol being something that's transcendent, that's abstract, that can apply to many different imminent mm-hmm. things. Okay. You know, so Plato's mm-hmm. realm of ideals, right? So there's a specific tree, but then there's the idea of treeness, and that lives in the transcendent realm, in the realm of ideas, in the um, abstract realm. So it's a symbol for all of the specific individual trees. But that distinction, to me, really occurs only in the mythical, not in the magical, because there's no distinction in the magical. Right, you're like, you're embedded in the symbol of yeah. magic, right? And then you can you yeah. can wield it. And fairy tales also mm-hmm. emerge in the mythical, right? Because it's the once upon a time, which differentiates from now, here right. and now. It's the, it's the origin of story, like th- yes. that narrative yes, mode. exactly. And yeah. in the brainwave state that it corresponds to is the alpha brainwave state, which is relaxed but not asleep. So if you just close your eyes, you go into an alpha brainwave state. So you're not actively thinking, you're relaxed, but you're not sleeping. And so to me, this is the meaning-making, self-reflective brainwave state. And so in the same way that that's where stories, that's where we, when we become self-reflective, we're no, our eyes are no longer open. We're not engaging with the external world. We're going internal and we're engaging with our memories. In childhood, what time do you start seeing that alpha brainwave? Um, and I, I want to say that the theta brainwave state is is very young, like two to three to maybe four and then alpha probably and I've got it written down somewhere and then alpha is probably like four five six and then beta which is the active thinking higher frequency so three seven eight uh, I'm just thinking whatever it doesn't matter this this is key like really closely to the developmental thing and I would imagine that Absolutely. beta shows up sometime like eight to ten years old. Yeah, right? I think I want to say seven, maybe even, okay. but yeah, yeah, right around there. And it also, I think, uh, location and time happens. Oh, I don't remember when. I was just reading about this recently. When it, uh, yeah, um, the details aren't there. But it's a, children have to be indoctrinated into time, right? They're not born into linear time. They're born in a timeless space, and that's where they live. And then they live in this hypnagogic dream time, which is all present moment, you know. To them, like, you know, you'll hear kids say, like, oh, I remember when you were little to their parents. Yeah. You know, like, the, the, the notion of remembering the past or thinking about the future, like, it's very tangled and interwoven. They don't know how to navigate that yet. Um, and we continually indoctrinate them into it by using temporal language um, and, and training them to remember and predict. Oh, you know, what was your favorite thing of what we just did? Oh, we're going to say granny next. What are we going to do when we're there? You know, yeah, like yeah, we're yeah. always displacing them in time when they are a very present moment. Um, but then they're layering into that mythical structure of consciousness and the meaning making and the storytelling, right? Mm. With, with And so the development of language and the ability to carry a coherent story and follow a coherent story. I mean, they can follow it early, but um, that... And, it, and it's a continu- it's a continuum, right? It's not like there's a distinct break because even as adults, we cycle through all the structures of consciousness over the course of one day, from deep sleep to dreaming, hypnotic, hypnagogic state, you know, to a meditative, restful state to beta thinking. But we normally think of beta like consciousness is the only thing that matters because we're in the mental structure of consciousness, which tends to disregard all the other structures of consciousness. Um, 
and the mental structure of consciousness and the beta brainwave state is the three-dimensional time, as Gebser talks about it. So it is past, present, future, you know? So you have those three dimensions of time. It's no longer the mythical here, not here, mm-hmm. or the magical, only one thing. But you, you get linear causality. This causes that, causes that, causes that. The scientific way of thinking, which is why science doesn't know what to do with any sort of divination system, because uh, they are synchronistic yeah. systems that live in between the magical and the mythical. Right, yeah. Well, also, you know, it's weird, because I was in contemplating all this stuff obsessively for the last decade or so, <laughs> you know, to, to narrativize this. There is... In the scientific process, it seems like it's really, you know, there's this refrain that correlation is not causation. Yes. And so it's funny to me because it seems as though science, in some weird way, is like a technology handed to children by an even more advanced, like, mode or structure of consciousness than the mental because it's primarily about... The, I mean, it's explicitly about looking at relationships rather than like simply extracting cause and effect. And like so many of the areas that are difficult for contemporary science to address, like a lot of this so-called paranormal stuff, like psi research, mm-hmm. is so. Again, like you said, it's it's about things happening synchronically and non-locally, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to tease apart any kind of causative relationship yeah. in spite of the fact that you know statistically and metastatistically that these correlations are there. Right. Like, you know for a fact but, that these two things are connected somehow. Yeah. But the connection is not a temporal connection. Right. Yeah. And so this is definitely is something that I really delve into in, in my book in that, you know, I start with a synchronicity story, right, where I in the soft state of consciousness was like dialoguing with characters and wrote this story about finding a sick fox in the woods. Okay. Two weeks later, walk around Lake Anza up in Berkeley, find a sick fox. You know, and I have to like, like, oh, well, I just wrote this story and now it's happening in real life. You know, what mm-hmm. is the causal connection here? Did writing the story cause me to find the fox? Right. Is it retrocausal? Did, by writing the story, did I tap into that future possibility? You know, but it's probably neither. Or it's how, how I tend to think about synchronicity is that it's actually tapping into something deeper that both of those things are emergent of. So there's so another I, dimension in time here. Yes, in the dimension is timelessness, okay. right? Um, and that is, and, and that's the beauty of fractals for time is that they can hold the infinity and the uh, finiteness of time in one thing. So just like we talked about the coastline paradox and the smaller your measuring stick is, the longer your coastline is going to be measured. And so that, so the coastline is actually infinitely long. Mm-hmm. If you could make your measuring stick finely tuned enough, um, the finer you tune it, the longer the coastline gets. Uh, so this paradox of it's still a finite surface area, but its perimeter is infinite. And so the same thing with, with time, we're only ever in the present moment. Yet somehow it is both finitely passing and omnipresent infinite. 
which is why one of the ways that fractals make such a nice model for time. And so the idea that the present moment is timeless, when we restrict ourselves to linear causal thinking, we are coarse-graining the present moment. So that court where we're glossing over the infinite depth of richness available within the present moment, um, and we coarse grain, and it's and it, of course it's paradoxical. We coarse grain it by dividing it more finely. So our beta brainwave state, mm-hmm. high frequency, is dividing the moment into tiny, tiny little pieces, whereas the theta brainwave state is not dividing it into as many pieces and therefore can actually take in more of its infinite depth because it's not collapsing it and moving it into the past. Every time you divide it, you collapse it and move it into the past. The more you can hold it open by dividing it less, the more you have access to the depth of it. But it's parad- it kind of goes the other way also. So it's it's I mean it's you're in the realm of paradox. So, so what about goes. what about gamma brainwaves? Is this associated with the integral structure? So, so you could say that it's a little it, to me. So Gebser's structures of consciousness: archaic, magical, mythical, mental, integral. The idea is that we're moving into the integral, and the shift that happens to move us into the integral, or one of them, um, is the loosening of the bounds of the mental. The mental has disregarded the first three structures of consciousness. The integral says, yes, mental, you are important, and everything you've discovered is important, and the mythical is real, and what the mythical experiences is real, and what the magical experiences is is, is real and what the archaic experiences is real and so we have to integrate all of these structures of consciousness rather than superseding them and so what that looks like to me in terms of brainwave states is not necessarily just going to gamma which which is a higher frequency brainwave state that has to do with whole brain synchrony and and states of elevated consciousness um, but part of my resistance to to that is the notion that it frequently gets batted around that we need to raise our frequency. Yeah. You know, and it's not about the, and, and this is very mental, right? The mental, of course, wants to raise your frequency. Yeah, more is better. Yeah. Higher, like, let's, let's yeah. higher vibration. But the, but the integral wants for these things to be in communication with each other mm. and to see each other and to recognize the value of each other. And the way that looks in brainwave states is, is actually the fractal signature or the noise signature of how the brainwave states fit together. So if they are in a specific ratio to one another, so pink noise is a is a ratio of frequencies where the longest, slowest frequencies have the greatest amplitude, mm-hmm. and the shortest, fastest frequencies have the lowest amplitude, and in a very specific relationship to each other. Um, brown noise has that same relationship, but with greater difference between the amplitudes of the fast and the slowest and so that they're further apart from each other they're less in dialogue with each other pink noise is kind of the Goldilocks state mm-hmm. between order and disorder and white noise is it a linear, linear yeah white noise yeah. is where all of the frequencies have the same amplitude and what we're experiencing in our culture right now is the entrainment of to the fast frequencies Right? We are not letting the long, slow frequencies have the greatest amplitude. Hmm. What does that look like? It looks like hanging out with rocks 
and trees and elders. And that's the integration that we need in order to nest our super fast frequencies within in order to give them direction. Mm. Where if they are directing us, there's greater chaos than there is predictability. But if we can nest within the natural structures of the long, slow frequencies that surround us, it will guide these fast frequencies in healthier directions. Mm. Have you read Stuart Brand's Clock of the Long Now? No. It's like the manifesto volume for the Long Now Foundation in Sausalito. Nice. And they're, they're like one of the major inspirations behind my doing this show in the first place because it's that constant redirection of our attention to the long wavelength yes to that long time horizon and i was just talking about this with uh keith and michelle norris who run the paleo effects conference here in austin you know they're like looking at it uh you know to to borrow marshall McLuhan's term like cultural retrieval Mm -hmm. you know how like the new media environment like you were saying in this state of constant interruption, the linear narrative modality of the mental structure has a harder time staying coherent and it gets pulled apart. And then all of this ancient stuff comes back to the surface as a relevant adaptation to yeah. a nonlinear environment. So, yeah. you know, hence paleo effects, right? Hence looking cool. back at like, oh, we should we should revive shamanism. We should revive the paleolithic diet. You know, we should maybe, you know, not wear shoes so often. Mm-hmm. We should build our houses out of mud. Yeah, we should build our houses out of structures that are like, you know, locally adapt- sourced and sustainable, and yeah. you know, not electromagnetically inimical to life. Yeah, or you know, leaching toxic fumes or whatever. You know, we should build for the setting that we're evolved for. And I think about this with the the long now. We were talking about this the other day about. I think it was in that book. Brand talks about how. The monastic time was accounting for this. You know, the monastic mm-hmm. time, like, situated itself within yeah. this much longer wavelength. Yeah. And as a matter of consequence, I forget the chapel in Europe, but it, the beams on the chapel were starting to go. And these are, like, three or 400-year-old virgin, like, tight grain, old-growth wood mm-hmm. and the people running the chapel now didn't know what to do about it but then they found this note that had been buried by one of the monks here you know hundreds of years ago where they explained that there was this grove of trees behind the cathedral that they had specifically planted they were like we took the acorns from these oaks or whatever it was yeah. and we planted replacement beams for you to use in 300 years awesome. and it's like if that's the kind of timeline if that's if that's like where the horizon is for our species i think we'll do just fine yeah (laughs) and and that kind of ties in the higher brainwave state the more finely we're slicing the moment and in a sense you have a very fine resolution of what's happening right now but your ability to see long range kind of vanishes Mm. whereas if you're tapped into those long slow uh frequencies then then they will carry information to you from very distant places in time. So I had Rack Razam and Niles Heckman on the show, and they're working on a documentary series called Shamans of the Global Village, and Rack in particular is a 
proselyte for 5-MeO-DMT. Mm-hmm. And, you know, has been a subject in recent brain research showing that mm-hmm. 5-MeO-DMT greatly increases the volume of gamma activity in the brain. Mm-hmm. And we were thinking, we were talking about this in relationship to snails, which mm-hmm. apparently also have a predominant gamma wave brain signature. What? Yeah. And we were like, so what, what do you think are the odds uh-huh. that, like, these entities that you're encountering in a tryptamine state are, like, these, like, elves or whatever, the self-transforming, the, 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 the are actually, are, like, snail Buddhas that are, <laughs> you know, that, like, that you've made it onto the membrane of that time fractal huh. that you're talking about. Huh. You know, you've finally divided it with your, like, plank length ruler yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so you're, you, you lose in that state, you know, it's like everything is happening at once. There is no past. There is no future. Mm-hmm. You know, you completely lose the ability to remember or plan. You know, the last time I sat in ayahuasca ceremony, I was looking back on multiple pasts, like multiple histories. Mm. And I was sitting there with my partner being like, so did this happen or did this happen? And we were like, could not remember. And it became yeah. clear to me that something like this is also going on in human aging. When mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. what we think of as the, and I'm just throwing this out there, but like I, I, I'm starting to suspect that what we think of as like the loss of memory through dementia or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. may actually, in some cases be that, but in, in some cases may actually be the return of the brain to this like almost like a quantum state as its grip yeah as its like yeah. structure starts to decay yeah and so you are Just actually taking a step out of the the grounded concrete yeah, realm like and, back you know yeah. you're de you're you're unlearning Absolutely. all of that indoctrination of the linear time matrix and you're looking back on like well you know you were there and but then you were also not there and like yeah. you know like you you kind of you know fall back into that sense of timelessness mm-hmm, which makes it very hard to relate to the concrete world but you know and and i think it's i think it's a maladoma somme observation about the the natural resonance between grandparents and grandchildren because they are both closer to that other realm you know one just emerging from it and one going back into it they're not as anchored in the solid world trying to make a living like people in the middle of their lives are time is money yeah and but then going back to the gamma wave thing for DMT, um, that reminds me of a Carlos Castaneda quote where, uh, and I can't remember which plant he was talking about, but he was saying the plants give us sufficient speed to catch the fleeting world, <laughs> which is which is a beautiful way to look at that high level of frequency as dividing the moment enough times to really get into the depths of the moment, you know, which is why it's paradoxical, right? The, the long, slow waves can leave it open so that we can bring it in, but we can mm. also divide it so finely that we can dive in to those fine divisions. But I love the the way that time shifts on psychedelics and had a friend describe his DMT experience that he tried to walk during it. Um, he said it was like every time he tra- took a step, it was like breaking through a pane of glass. Yeah, because you know? you've got to put one damn thing in front of the try- other. Because you're trying to move when you're in a timeless <laughs> state, you know, and so it brings in these issues of relativity, right? You're in the infinite depths of time. You cannot move in space. Uh, so um, let's talk about relativity, right? Because this is the obvious thing here. This is, you get the, the Einsteinian 4D. Oh, who was it? It was... 
James Glick gave a talk, a seminar at the Long Now talk, where mm-hmm. he was talking about how H.G. Wells writes The Time Machine and basically introduces to the public imagination the idea of time as a, as a spatial dimension, mm-hmm. as a fourth, as 4D. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that you move through it. Whereas before that point, we in the West, at least, tended to think of time as something that was moving through us, yeah. As, yeah. as opposed to us yeah. moving through time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he, he, he didn't find any relationship between H.G. Wells and Albert Einstein, but then it's like within, you know, 20 years or something, or, you know, 20, 30 years, Einstein independently seems to come up with this idea of the space-time manifold. Yeah. You know? The block where, universe. Yeah, where... Einstein-Mikowski, yeah. Right, so it's a, it's a present... It's it's a fractal present where sometimes the present in one inertial frame is in the past or the future of a different present. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, how does that relate to the emergence of an integral structure of consciousness, and how does the emergence of a networked and fractal present relate to the emergence of like network communication technologies and stuff because it seems okay, like let's take one at a yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so the block universe is a deterministic universe, right? It's like it's it's played out one way. It's going to play out one way. Like this is it. Um, and, the feel of the blockchain. Yeah, and, and it's a very while uh, relativity, chaos theory, quantum mechanics are very much bridge structures from the mental to the integral. Uh, the block universe is still very much anchored in the mental because of the term deterministic aspect. The shift. Uh, and our understanding of time from the mental to the integral is a shift to incorporating subjective experiences of time. And so there's no, not much room in the block universe for subjective experiences of time. Like, you, you, there's just not space for that depth of diversity. Um, and like you said, it gets externalized rather than, it, it, time becomes this external thing rather than something that's moving through us. And I've really been moving in my thinking to the, not just something that's moving towards us, but I think of it as a tension between frequencies um, in a way that, well, and so so there was this researcher, Hudson Hoagland, whose wife got really sick and had a fever. Um, you know, he went in and checked on her and went away, did something else and came back to check on her again. So you're like, ah, you've been gone for so long. Like, why are you neglecting me? He's like, I was gone for five minutes. What are you talking about? Um... But he realized, you know, being an inquisitive mind, he's like, huh, she has a fever. You know, all of her bodily processes are accelerated. She's mm-hmm. dividing time more finely, so therefore she's experiencing, by virtue of her internal frequencies being faster, she's experiencing external frequencies as being slower. Mm-hmm. And so the same idea with the DMT, right? If you're in a gamma brainwave state, you're moving so fast that what seems like just this external, a second externally would actually feel like, you know, an eternity. That's why language seems to suck. Yeah. You know, it's like what it's like the faster our our digital environment moves, it's like we have to come up with new languages in order to communicate fluidly enough to keep up with 
what we're actually experiencing in that in that in, in yeah. system. Yeah. And so the notion that our body temperature somehow regulates our experience of time is a fascinating one to play with because we operate at a controlled burn. And when you start looking at this from the perspective of entropy, which says, you know, the, o- the only place in physics where the arrow of time shows up, everything in physics is time symmetrical. It works mm-hmm. equally well backwards and forwards except for entropy, second law of thermodynamics. It basically says things cool off, slow down, spread out, get more disordered. Um, but the get more disordered is kind of how it normally gets pitched. But entropy also creates order, just in very, in very much smaller pockets than the disorder. And typically, the order it creates creates disorder faster than would otherwise arise. So it creates organized structures. So just like the water flows out of a bathtub down a whirlpool, which is an organized structure of water, because it moves faster through an organized structure mm-hmm. than it would through just glug, 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 glugging. Right. And so we are an organized structure of energy flow that operates at a controlled burn. So we're, key, we're maintaining this one temperature, which is a rate of energy flowing through us. Right? We're an organized structure, but we're always dissipating heat. We're always putting off disorder. Our order creates disorder faster than if we were not here. But that operating temperature gives us a set range of frequencies that we operate within and that we get accustomed to. And at however those frequencies are, are locking into the external frequencies that are around us is what's generating our experience of time. Um, and so things existing at different temperatures are going to experience different times. Uh, I can't remember exactly. So, so this is like, this is related to this weird uh, perfect correlation between the physical singularity of a black hole mm-hmm. and the metaphorical singularity of our, like this threshold moment where our technology mythologically mm-hmm. exceeds us, right? Like, you know, argu- mm-hmm. you know arguably mm-hmm. we can say we've been through a bunch of singularities already, blah, blah, blah. You know, that language but a, but a is a singularity. But a singularity would be no differentiation, right? It would be like back to the archaic structure of consciousness. Well, yeah. I mean, but like, in a different, but in an externalized way rather than an internalized right, way. Right, right. So this notion that as time and space spaghettify as your astronaut approaches a black hole mm-hmm. to the point where, like, right as they reach the event horizon, for them, time supposedly stops. Yeah. Right? And yeah. they're, and also their body is stretched infinitely long. Yeah. Then it seems like something like that is going on for us subjectively mm. as we're approaching this moment, yeah. that this prophesied moment in like 2045 or whatever where... I, I would argue that it's a limit that we will never reach, that we yeah. will asymptote towards just in the same way a black hole, you know, is that, that funnel shape that funnels towards the, the singularity and the asymptotic shape, but it's not somewhere we ever get. We just continue to approach it like phi or pi. Right. But at some point you would expect, I mean, if... A, if, if the metaphor holds, then, you know, you're not going to survive as a human being. You're not going to make it all the way to the event horizon. Oh, no. You know, and right. so, like, there's this right. there's this notion of, like, as a species, like, is this actually a decent metaphor for us? Because it's, you know, to, to, to pull the woo element a little more tightly into this conversation, you got... Who else did a fractal study of time? Well, Terence McKenna's time wave zero hypothesis yeah. qualifies. Yeah. You know, and he he pinned this apotheotic moment 
you know, at the end of 2012 as the moment where that undifferentiable point goes, you know, the, the, the curve spikes to a vertical and, and everything happens at once. Yeah. And it's like, okay, show me, show me the moment that everything happens at once. Yeah. And that's not, uh, it's not like compatible with human existence, really. But it's compatible with death. Mm-hmm. You know, and where you go after death, kind of like that's another asymptote, right? Yeah. That we're continually approaching. And, and because that's when you were talking about the survival beyond the singularity, you know, it's like that's that's the initial, that's the, the fundamental human conundrum of, you know, does my ego survive on the other side? Do I go to heaven? Do I go to nirvana? You know, what's, what's on the other side kind of thing? And is it essential for my ego to survive well, in my belief system, right? Everyone's Renting cert, everyone. You know, I'm sure there are people already like pre, like reserving server space on machines Google hasn't invented yet, so that they can live forever on the shining city on the hill. You know that that Eric Davis technosis thing where the mental oh, structure displaces its religious impulses into the apparently scientific. But at any rate, we're just talking shit now. Um, so. This all kind of like let's let's uh, anchor this in like current events because mm-hmm. this is the thing that that I, I this shit keeps me awake at night right now. Yeah, we're at a point where Wired magazine, Radiolab, Forbes, and a number of other major publications have brought up within the last month this issue of artificial intelligence's growing ability to forge documents. Oh, interesting. To forge, like, video or audio so that it looks like, wow. you know, it looks like your wife is saying, you know, something to you, and it's actually an actor puppeting a photograph of your wife, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And it just, it's like getting us to this point where we're going to have a real hell of a time Agreeing on which recordings and and other forms of media, and we already don't know what's real, just fake news, blah blah blah. Right, blah. right. You have no idea what what somebody's telling you. So, like, actually. right. So, like, just as the the economic value of a blockchain is dependent on everyone holding the same blockchain. Everyone has the same record, the same ledger. Just as democracy is dependent on everyone reading the same newspaper rather than getting served different news by Cambridge Analytica on their Facebook news feed, we're like approaching this moment where we completely lose hold of what constitutes admissible evidence in the court of public opinion mm. or in, you know, we, it, we have to become forensics experts in order to even stay reasonably informed or, about things or going it, on. Or technology creates its own destruction and it can't be trusted anymore, so everybody drops it. Right. So... I mean, which seems rather unlikely. If yeah, we're, totally. If we're looking I mean, there's, there's gonna, I mean, to me, the direction of evolution is increasing diversification, right? And some people are going to go totally into that world, and some people are going to totally drop that world, and it's just going to continue to, like, niche-making. Right. And, and continuing to deepen into very different worlds. So I guess my question for you is, like, I've been, I've been playing with this notion of what 
what time will be like for people living in a world where you cannot, you literally cannot believe your own ears and eyes because there are little projectors mounted in the corner of the room that are projecting light directly onto your retina so that you think somebody's standing in front of you that's not there and like you know you're not like we we already can't take the time to verify everything that we read yeah And, and, and to me it's just like I was a case manager for just a year in Seattle as a Jesuit volunteer corps and it was fascinating to work with schizophrenics one in particular young man who's very insightful and you know pretty much had everything managed and under control symptoms wise was just working a part-time job they wanted to increase him to full-time increase stress increase paranoia you know stuff started coming up again and for me as his case manager I was like how helpful is it for you if for me to reality test with you to be like okay well the neighbors probably really aren't monitoring your movements with the volume of their radio and how helpful is is it for me to like say well that's probably not really happening you know and he's like you know it actually isn't helpful at all because this is my reality that I'm living in Mm. you know and what I I had to work within his reality to help him not try to dissuade him of his reality And, and this was a main shifting point for me in my perspective of the world you know and and coming to realize that everybody really has their own reality and they are all very different you know we're participating in one consensual reality but like that is not our experience and often we internally experience multiple realities which seem like they might be conflicting and we really just have to get better at holding multiple realities (laughs) and recognizing what's important about them because often you know Somebody may have a big apocalyptic conspiracy theory, right, that they're really bought into, and like that is their reality. And what's real for them is fear. I take the approach of dream interpretation, right? And so just like, and this is what the integral is going to teach us. It's going to teach us how does our mental structure of consciousness dialogue with the mythical and dialogue with the magical structure of consciousness. And for a lot of the conspiracy theory type stuff, paranoia type stuff, multiple realities, you know, those live in these other structures of consciousness. The mental is the one that says, oh, there is one true reality. It is the consensual reality. Anything that deviates from that does not count. Right. Ignore it. It'll go away. It doesn't go away. You know? And so how the mental dialogues with these structures, how how does our conscious reality acknowledge and take from our moments of self-reflection and create space for? How do we interpret dreams, the magical structure of consciousness? Because those realities, you know, it's like you may be having these interactions with people which don't reflect your human relationships, your everyday relationships with those people at all in, in your dreams. And so one way to interpret that is to look at the feeling tone of the dream. The feeling tone of the dream is is most often going to accurately reflect the feeling tone of your waking life. Um, And to start thinking about it in terms of undifferentiated individuality, each of these characters are aspects of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, and how do I relate to those aspects of myself? And then we can use that same thing in our waking reality. You know, oh, this person is really frustrating me. What is it that's frustrating me about them? Oh, well, it's... You know, that they're really particular about being, like, things being super clean, you know. And I hate that because my parent was like that. And so that's why I can't handle it, you know. Whereas if I can approach that with, oh, that's an aspect of myself that I disown, 
And in fact, probably my own repressed or never fully developed rational yeah. beta wave mentality. Yeah, exactly. And so the more we can develop compassion for the different parts of ourselves, the more we can develop compassion for each other, the less important it becomes what the stories are that are told to us about how we relate to each other. Because we get better at being at peace with whatever is happening. Hmm. So, so do you see as a consequence of what Doug Rushkoff calls narrative collapse and fractal noia, these like traits of our new relationship to time yeah, and digital space. Forming, so like narrative collapse would be uh, because news happens all everywhere at once, all at once, then it's changed the way that we relate to a story. Yeah. Um, it gets collapsed into one story rather than carrying it through. Yeah, yeah well, it's like it doesn't, the, it doesn't develop over time in the same way from mm-hmm. a controlled single source. So, you know, like something becomes popular and then suddenly everyone's got memes and fan fiction and it just, it, there's, there isn't like, you know, you get the mainstream media talking about the Boston bombing at the same time that you have people that are like, like your first encounter with that news story might be someone who's already critiquing it as, as a false flag terrorist attack, right. you know, or whatever. It's like the official story and the conspiracy counterfoil story show up at the same time now. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, he says, we've shifted our emphasis in media. This is all out of his book, Present Shock, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is, I think you'd really enjoy as far as time studies go. The consequence for us in our media is that he notes that we've shifted out of episodic serial content into content like, you know, like Leave it to Beaver or Married with Children. Right. Kind of where it's like each episode contains a full story. We've shifted either into a super long wave, you know, eight season thing with no clear hero, no clear villain. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all very complex and ambiguous. Yeah. Um, Or we've shifted into like reality television where there is no scripted narrative at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah, interesting. And he says, you know, out of that environment comes this other effect, which he calls fractal noia, which is, like we were talking about earlier, it's the, you know, this sort of schizotypal experience rears its head when you're in a you're in this like ripple this like echo chamber of all of these different stories happening at once and everything seems connected yeah you know so I mean he looks at like he's like this is is where chemtrail conversation comes from this is where you know you suddenly get into you know people connecting the uh, Alaskan high altitude auroral research project and the like blips in their public data feed of their like gigawatt radio array study okay where with these curiously synchronic and unusual seismic signatures correlated with the earthquakes off of Chile or Haiti yeah and you start saying hey it looks like they have an earthquake gun and like this kind of thing it's like we're receiving all this information we're naturally drawing the lines between these things and to me that's the that's the that's the collision of the mental structure of consciousness and and the mythical and mm-hmm. magical structures of consciousness, right? Because the mental wants to go straight for the causal explanation. Yeah. They have an earthquake gun. Right. You know, and to blame, wants to blame somebody, right? So I feel like all these things are happening at the same time that the development in emotional and psychological intelligence is 
is at a point or, you know, I don't know how to, to, words are not happening. But I feel like... Requires you high. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, the difference in psychological and emotional processing between our generation and our parents' generation, you know, the, the refinement and the subtlety and the complexity is increasing. Um, I'm afraid of my imaginary kids. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but I think that's a natural consequence, right? And I feel like the spaciousness that our generation or many of our generation has been given in order to process and heal a lot of the generational stuff, you know, like that's what parents have been trying for, you know, it's like, all right, I'm just going to try to get my kid a little bit further along, a little further Mm -hmm. along, a little further along. And that, um, at this point, people are actually actively trying to heal some of that shit that's just been getting passed down. Yeah. Yeah. In more conscious, subtle, nuanced ways than than has been available in the past, really. And so there's this sense that that emotional, psychological development is happening at the same time that... And what were we just talking about? What am I tying this in? Narrative collapse, fractal noia, and, yeah, and the so future of our experience of time and, like, what, what that's going to look like for an integral yeah. and civilization. So, and, and, and so into this notion of the breakdown of the self, really, and the complexity of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember exactly where I was going to go with that, but I was going yeah, mean, to... So, so are, we, are we destined, if we're going to talk about this in a, you know, quote-unquote linear mode of uh-huh. past, present, future? Oh, that's what it was. It was the like, mental uh, one yeah, of the we, linear mode. Are we going to yeah. give up this time in favor of some some new... Like is is like the way that we experience time now in fifty to a hundred years or whatever going to seem as ridiculous as this sort of uh, like eternal magical moment that our kids are in? Like it will be different, right? But I think we will increase our ability to tap back into that when we want to. Okay. Because we're not going to go so get through structures of consciousness. Um, it's not a linear hierarchical development. You know, they go back and forth between each other all the time. But there is a change in transparency and latency. And so the archaic structure of consciousness, the first one, is completely latent and non-transparent. It cannot see any of the other structures of consciousness. And every time you step up to the next level, you lose some latency. Pe- things become more manifest rather than lurking in potentiality. And they gain transparency. They can see the structure that came before it. So the mental structure of consciousness has become more explicit. Its latency is unfurling. And it has transparency. It can see back to those other structures. So the magical structure of consciousness, if we're going to assume children in their theta brainwave state are living there, they can't see, they can't conceptualize what the mental structure of consciousness is yet. Um, Like, that's just not available to them. Whereas the integral, the idea is if we're moving into the integral, then we can navigate between these with full transparency to all of them. Um, So we can consciously choose to go back and visit the magical or the mythical. So what's the new thing that comes out of having this embrace of all of these different modes, like a like a plural understanding of time rather yeah. than a singular understanding of it. So what um it, it's a return to 
because what gets added, the mental has all three dimensions of time, the past, present, and future, but the integral has four dimensions of time, and the fourth dimension that gets added is the subjective experience of time, which the mental disregards, clock time disregards. It's like this is the, this is the consensus narrative, this is what time it is, we're all on the same clock. I don't care how long you felt like it took. <laughs> this is how long it took. Um, but the integral brings new attention to what does it feel like, and that we have very diverse experiences of time when we're reflecting, when we're dreaming, when we're playing with children, and tra- in training our brainwave states with theirs, uh, when we're on psychedelics, when we're in a mystical experience, when we're meditating. Um, City time and country time. Yeah. The New York minute. Yeah. Is a real thing. Yeah. It's funny, like the, my original co-host Evan Snyder lives in New York City, and it was remarkable how difficult it was to do this show because his world was operating at like 1.5 times the speed of my world. Yeah. And so it's like just even like finding the time to align for like the necessary crew yep. calls yep. for this show is bizarre. It yep. was really difficult. You get yeah. into these spaces like Burning Man where uh, I know that this has been discussed. Uh, there was a TED Talk about this. I forget who gave it. But talking about the like scaling laws in mm-hmm. like with a de- like increasing density of connections mm-hmm. and how time does actually subjectively and in some like systemic ways objectively occur faster in cities not like in a you yeah. know not like a second is actually longer or right, shorter right but the frequency is faster so it's yeah. has greater information density yeah yeah a greater you know like the, you, you're or or like the way that they described it in sensate talking about have you seen that show mm-hmm. oh man the wachowskis did this thing on netflix and it's these characters who discover that they're aware of one another psychically they like live all over the world but they're connected in one mind and then they you know and so at some point there's a they pepper the show with these sort of like tiny vignettes of like academic lectures or interviews or whatever of you know secondary characters one of them was saying at a, like a book reading or something in the show that we encounter more new faces every day these days than your average person would have encountered in a lifetime even like 500 years ago yeah which is the acceleration of time that, it, you know, like that we experience over the course of a lifetime, right? That time continually seems to go faster the older you get because there's this shift in information density, right? When you're young, all the information is external. You're taking it in, right? So this is the tension between frequencies again. Like your internal frequencies are, are slow and still forming. External frequencies are much faster. You're taking in that density and internalizing it, which creates faster frequencies in you as you're layering in faster brainwave states trying to entrain with the speed of the world around you but it gets to a point where it shifts and your internal density becomes more information density becomes greater than your external density and when that happens that's when that's when the shift happens right between oh the timeless summers of childhood because <laughs> you're just continually in the flow of information going in to an elder who's every scent, whiff of scent on the air or tree or person that they see is so embedded with layers upon layers upon layers of memory that like each tiny moment evokes just a whole world Mm. internally 
such that when that passes, you know, it's like a huge thing just passed. Like, and and there's a, a density of time that happens. Um, you see that in Star Wars. Hmm. When Vader realizes that Obi-Wan's on the Death Star, like, they're all, like, searching the hangar, and then suddenly Vader just stops, and he's like, he's here. He has this, like, moment. He catches the whiff of Obi-Wan on the breeze. Uh-huh. And you see, uh-huh. you, like, you see this moment where, like, you don't even see the actor's face, but you still get this, like, that that felt sense of the presence of those three entire prequel movies. Yeah. That, you know, it's like there's this, all of this story between these characters that has just been evoked in, in like, a whiff of... Yeah. 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 And so the, the density of time of that is huge, and so it feels like it's just flying by because it was so much that happened in just a tiny instant. So this whole notion of, like, the future of time is starting to seem more and more ridiculous because if we... Well, and that's the other thing, right? Because in a linear narrative of time, there's a future of time. Right. But if we step out and recognize that linear narrative is only one narrative of time and that timelessness is kind of the underlying thing which linear time emerges out of, you know, then that's the asymptote that we're approaching, right, is the timelessness. Right. It's kind of like where's the beginning of time, Right. There's a time when time emerged, but it emerged from timelessness. So to ask what came before time, like timelessness came before time. Right, right. What comes after time or in the future of time. I mean, Sean Carroll has, you know, made made the, the point that it seems reasonable enough to suspect that there are pockets of a reversed temporal flow yes. in the world, that there's, like, spots where the clock runs backwards relative to us, especially if we're looking at, you know, if the Big Bang holds up, then you would expect an explosion, you know, a, an expansion in one area to mean a contraction in something else. So, like, if entropy is going this way here, then you would expect it somewhere else. You know, like the like the uh, dumbbell galaxies, right? Mm-hmm. That, that are the, the stream of ejecta emerging out of the North and South Pole, you know, are equal. And the weird ones are the ones that are only shooting out uh, uh, ejecta in one direction. direction. Yeah. And it's like, we don't know what's going on there. Yeah. We have no reason to believe that our universe is the exception to the rule. So you would think that, you know, if Big Bang, then there's another universe just like ours going in the opposite direction. Well, it doesn't even have to be another universe, right? It's just a different perspective on our same flow of time. You know, like like Merlin time, right? Mm -hmm. I talked about in the dissertation about Merlin time. It's like he's living backwards, right? It's all going the opposite direction to him, but it's it's the same universe. It's just a different perspective on the same thing, right? And you can look at it with light cones, which are, you know, just the graph of where light has been in the past, kind of shaped like a, you know, ice cream cone, upside down ice cream cone, and where it's going in the future, shaped like a right side up ice cream cone, with the slope being the speed of light, the horizontal axis being space, and the vertical axis being time. Um, Y'all are missing her very helpful hand diagrams. (laughs) (laughs) Google search it, you'll get the visual. (laughs) A light cone. But then the idea is, you know, as a light cone, and this is Pen- Roger Penrose's stuff, and I think it's Shadows of the Mind. He, he, you can see how he plays with these ideas, that as space-time bends, light cones tip. Hmm. And so then when you get a black hole, light cones end up on their side. So space inside a black hole, space becomes time and time becomes space. Who knows what that means? Your body is a wonderland, I think. Yeah, 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 nice. (laughs) Uh, Uh, But 
but the idea of then it could it doesn't who knows which direction the light cone comes back out of the black hole and if it did come back out of the black hole it'd just be going backwards in time anyhow hmm. because nothing comes out of a black hole but if, but, if, but if a white hole is really just a temporally reversed black hole like if you just look at it from the up op- like everybody's always mm-hmm. looking for white holes right where right. is the opposite of the black hole oh well it's right there it's just the other direction in time hmm. and since since everything that we're looking for with our eyes is in the past yeah already like the, it's taken some amount of time for that light to reach us yeah then we would have to expect that we only find the white hole by looking into the future Right? Like, we have to look at the opposite way in time, like the Doppler shift. Yeah. Well, and, and this is kind of my, one one of my ideas about how our experience of time could shift moving forward, right? Because we had to grow into our sense of linear time and our sense of time moving in one direction, right? As it children, was gross, yeah. And ch- as children, like, that that didn't happen, you know, maybe as indigenous people or as, you know, ancient people, rather, um, you know, time is a very different thing. And it, and we had to practice remembering. Like, we had to get good at that in order to form an idea of linear causality. And so just in the same way that we had to practice remembering in order to expand our moment into the past, like, can we get good at, at predicting? Mm. You know, if we just practice that a little bit more. And I think part of where that comes in is in the present moment, that where we're probably receiving information in the present moment from both the past and the future, but we just know how to recognize the past information right now. And to me, that's where non-deterministic stuff happens, right? Quantum mechanics, you can only determine the probability. You can't determine exactly how something's going to collapse. And quantum mechanics relies on imaginary time, what does that mean? You know, it could be future information, reverse causality is coming in that influences how something collapses in ways that we do not yet comprehend. Because if you ask a physicist what imaginary time is, nobody will touch that with a 10-foot pole. I got to say, though, for, you know, I, I don't know who's listening here. And I think, you know, bringing up this issue of reverse causality, this is actually really well studied. There are a number of different fields that have taken this issue. Psychology, you know, there's the the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, which looked at it from, uh, like, a statistical... Like the pre-response, emotional, physiological responses before the stimulating image. Paralab did stuff on um, getting people to predict the outcome of... Well, like, they found that there were people who... Like, if you have a random event generator, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just generating numbers, or if you have something like a pachinko machine type deal where the ball can fall one way or the other, then they found that there was a small but significant effect of intention on the outcome of these experiments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that some people were better at it, reliably better at it than other people, and that you could be trained to improve in the skill, and mm-hmm. that it was associated mm-hmm. with with a particular state of consciousness yes, that was like absolutely. a state of entanglement with the system itself yep. uh, where there wasn't really a clear subject-object boundary. Yep. And you got to drop out of the active beta thinking and into a mythical, magical structure of consciousness because you're getting at that, that depth of the timelessness where everything is connected. So 27 years they were researching this stuff, and what they found was that there are moments 
that it was the it was the time symmetrical thing that mm-hmm. if you were to have someone try to steer the outcome of the random number generator in a, a greater or lesser direction and the numbers are about to be generated. They got the same statistical significance for those results mm. and for results where the numbers were generated by a machine two weeks ago and then encrypted, never seen by human eyes yeah. until you run the experiment and then yeah. you open the thing yeah. and people were influen- seemingly influencing the, uh, the outcome of events that had occurred in the past. Retrocausally, yeah. Or vice versa, right? Or they were influenced by... Yeah, and you can't, yeah. you can't, you can't, you can't uh, really tell. It, yeah. And then furthermore, they they uh, went on to do a project called the Global Consciousness Project, where they put random number generators all over the world. Yeah. And for the last 20 years or something, this project has been going. And the deviations from randomness, statistically, uh, occur in this global network all at once. Mm-hmm. And they occur in moments of... Mass consciousness synchronization. Right, like yeah. the election of Barack Obama, the September 11th attacks, yeah. you know, like uh, these things where it's like on the news everywhere, all of a sudden... The same thing. Right, yeah. and so there's this, there's like, we're starting to get our scientific heads around a disturbance in the force, and specifically, these events are registered by the network before they occur. Yeah. But there's like a bell curve in the response, so their network started picking up something before the planes hit the World Trade Center. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, like, this is yeah. not, like, I know this shit sounds crazy, but it, but it but it's happening. Well, and I think it makes sense, right? Because the our conscious brain, beta brainwave state, is fine-graining things on such a small scale, um, you know, that it's not tapped into those larger. When you're on a longer, slower brainwave state and letting that be dominant, then that wave is carrying information from disparate moments into the present moment, and so. You know, and this is always my response when people ask me, you know, like, oh, well, how do you, how do you think animals perceive time? Or how, you know, what's the whole sheldrake, you know, your dog knows when they're coming home. Mm, yeah. Knows when the owner's coming home. And I just think their moments are larger. You know, the dog goes to sit by the door half an hour before the owner comes home because to the dog, the owner's kind of already home. Like their moment is big enough. Mm that it's kind of happening. It's happening already, you know. Mm. Even, but we're so finely dividing things. We're like, oh, that's like half an hour away. That's like an eternity away. Yeah. Um, but for the dog who's been sitting bored at home all day. Interesting. That, that, kind of, that kind of ties into like when people ask me if I'm excited for a vacation. Yeah. You know, like, are you getting excited? You're going to go to Burning Man in two weeks. I'm like, that is two weeks away. Yeah, totally. You know? I'm the like, same. Like, I'm, I'm not there yet. I don't know why I'd be getting excited. That doesn't make, I mean, but I guess it makes more sense you have a really boring job. Right, right. If you're, <laughs> you need something to look forward right. to. Right, yeah. Well, but, okay. Um, but, it, but it's the emotional current that carries that information. You know, it's not, and, and the emotions are a longer, slower brainwave state. You know, it's not that super fast frequency that carries that information. It's the longer, slower brainwave state, which is, which is the emotional reality. In the same way that the book Dancing with a Ghost I'm going to blank on the author's name, but it's describing indigenous reality or something Google like it, people. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, beautiful, like, really cool book. But the author describes, he's a white guy who was working with Native tribes in Canada, and, and he was a fishing guide for a while. And he describes 
his increasing ability, you know, that he was kind of had watched other guides who had been doing it for a long time, just like know where to take the tourists to actually find fish, right? And as a beginning guide, he was not very good at it. But as after he'd been doing it for several, like five years or something like that, he's like, I could go out on the end of the dock, feel the quality of the day, imagine myself in the different spots that I'm going to go and feel the emotional response that I felt to those spots Mm. to know where to take the people. And that's the embedded like physical reality that we carry with us because you're catching fish. You have a strong emotion there, right? And it's tied to the whole, every weather variable of that day, Mm. you know? So when he goes and stands on the dock and he feels all the weather variables of that day, and he then he puts himself in an imaginal space in each of those places. He can tell which emotions are linked to the qualities of that particular day and spot. Yeah. You know, so there's this embodied knowledge that we carry that's beyond our conscious knowing, that's emotionally anchored, that we don't often slow down to pay attention to, but that I think carries future information. I mean, and, and, and that way kind of gets explained away as a past causal understanding of, you know, way things have played out in the past. Um, but, but I think there's probably the other piece of it in there is the kind of the, the future influence that it comes in through the emotions. Totally. And I would add to that that, like, I think people would have a harder time explaining intuition as merely subliminal sense data integration yes. yeah. of past events. If, you know, like, in light of stories like when I was working on telling the difference between my own intuitive insight and just like impulse, like urge, yes, you know, like that yeah. when I was learning to discriminate yeah. between that like deep what uh like like that deep, slow, still, yeah, knowing mind, and that like rapid kind of like you gotta do this thing, right, because sometimes you know sometimes intuition does show up like all of a sudden it's like, yo, do this right now, yeah, but like it's the it's the tone in that that makes a difference, you know am I should I listen mm-hmm. and in in sussing that out, I remember this particular experience I had driving on the 405 in Los Angeles in 2010 and all of a sudden it was like change lanes right now mm-hmm. and I didn't because I was in the in the process of experimental disobedience ah. and within a, like a second my lane came to a dead stop from 70 miles an hour and the lane to my right kept going at full speed. Interesting. And it was like these little things, like it was not like, it wasn't something like the car in front of me was going 70 miles an hour. It's not like there were no, there were, there were no clues. There were no clues that suddenly traffic would come to a stop. And I think that that's, uh, I mean, I think that's actually the rule rather than the exception. I think most people have had an experience like that. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've got a friend who, um, talks about, he was driving in his car and he, and he got this flash of, you know, somebody pulling a gun on him in his car. And, like, seconds before it actually happened, you know, and enough time that he had developed a plan as to how to react. That's strange. Kind of thing, you know, and that, 
to me kind of ties into right the experiments that they've done on on pre-spawns where they hook you up to see you know how sweaty your hands are what's your heart rate doing whatever and then they're showing you oh a beautiful pastoral scene oh you know clouds oh snake about to bite you you know how did you know you're gonna see a snake yeah <laughs> yeah and your body responds before the snake comes on um and so there's something about that emotional intensity that has a wider stretch in time than just the moment that it happens and so we're gonna pick up on it earlier and the other study that i like that kind of plays to this a little bit i think um is one they did with people like doing a car driving video game you know and they get used to how the controls work and everything and then without telling them they introduce a two-second delay between every time they turn the wheel and when the car on the screen turns you know and it throws them off for a little bit but eventually they learn to compensate and can still drive the game pretty well with this two-second delay built in then without telling them they take the delay away and all of a sudden they feel like the game is moving them Mm, I've heard about that. The yeah, it's causality like, reverses. Like when you're on a boat and you're watching the river, like yeah. you're, you're going past, and then like the boat is still, but the river is moving. And then as soon as you get out on the river, it feels like you're going backwards or whatever. Yeah, it's like that kind of. Yeah, exactly. And so the same thing can happen in time, you know. And so, and it makes sense specifically when looking at schizophrenia when they people with schizophrenia are not able to divide time as finely as other people are to distinguish between causality within a certain Mm. narrowness of time and so it makes sense that like when they're hearing you know the tv recite their thoughts to them you know it can be a very similar thing as what was going on for these people playing the video game right that the causality is is reversed they're not feeling their like the sense of agency lives inside of them but instead is coming outside of them because they're in this open moment you know, that hasn't been collapsed as finely as most people collapse time and allows us to watch TV and know that those are not our thoughts. So what that, happens to choice in this hypothetical but increasingly well, we, likely future in which all of us are as unclear about the past as we are about the future, but clearer about the future than we've ever been? Yeah, and that our identities are increasingly intertwined. And like, yeah, porous and yeah. multidimensional. And right. And so it's no longer... Yeah, I mean, I... I like, does, does, the, because, does because, the free will thing just become irrelevant? Kind of. It could. You know, yeah. and I'm comfortable with that. Like, I'm comfortable with complete determinism. Uh, and but it then, wouldn't and be then, deterministic then, either. Well, right? but I think one way to interpret it is that free will comes from future influence that we just can't see. Uh, okay is one way I would interpret it as being deterministic, you know? You've got, like, time going both ways. We just see the one direction of time. It's co-deterministic, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you you know. That's the invisible variable. That's the measurement error is the shit that you haven't measured, literally. exactly, exactly. Um, And so, you know, how we live in that, I don't know. (laughs) Are you familiar with Rocco's, I think it's Rocco's Basilisk? Oh, I have an image. This is like a transhumanist ghost story. This is the story that was going around. Uh, it's it's like a thought experiment, right? Where, not a story, technically, in the same way that a song is not a madrigal. But at any rate, the, the, uh, the idea is that it's one of these things where it's like, if we eventually create some sort of transcendental, super intelligent AI, mm-hmm. then it's going to realize that it needs to guarantee the conditions of its own existence. 
And so it's going to like prune the tree of quantum possibilities. So the timeline leads to it. And so basically like everything, like if we are in a future where this thing exists, then we are actually already completely owned by it. That like we're already doing the things it needs for us to do in order assuming to exist. Assuming it has the power to like. Assuming, yeah, yeah. yeah. Assuming, <laughs> assuming that it has, you know, that there is, you know, I mean, we're, we are talking about a godlike yeah, intelligence, exactly. and, yeah. and we're, you know, if the asymptote of the human experience of time is this like fractal membrane around the sort of like mental abstraction of it yeah then there's got to be you know you would imagine that the next layer which takes that as an object and technologizes it in the way that the mental technologizes the symbol right would be one in which uh, like eternal simultaneity is technologized so that you can sort of like turn this thing around mm-hmm. and play with it like a Rubik's cube, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so, the, like the Rocco's Basilisk is has determined that resistance is futile, yeah. and that like there's nothing that you can do, yeah. despite you know, like whatever kind of free will you have is actually this thing's free will exerting its like it, yeah. like it's. It's well, and, that, and that's kind of the perspective I've always taken on, uh, like, because I'm fine with the term. Like, I, I guess I tend to think all all interpretations of reality hold some truth and don't are not. The mental structure of consciousness wants to choose one over another, but the integral structure of consciousness says, nope, they're all true. They fit together somehow, figure it out. But the idea that, did I just lose it again? It's so hard to talk and think at the same time. Like, words keep up with my brain. Just don't think. I know. It's, I know. That's where we are. That's yeah. where we are. If you're thinking, you're, yeah. you're that fraction of a second behind yourself. Exactly. Because it was a simultaneous. Okay, because the definition of human experience to me is the limitation of infinity in yeah. order to have experience. Right? Yeah. But this is not that. Yeah, exactly. But there's some way in which we're wanting to increase our diversity of experience, which is kind of leading us closer to that infinity merging of everything. But that are we going to ever reach that? or are Well, and I think that the human body necessarily has limitations in information processing. Yeah. Um, and so... As soon as you get to the point of, like, stepping beyond that, you've stepped beyond the body and just into the energy flow, right, and back to yeah, the did, did, did Icarus's wings actually melt, or did he just sort of... Do we? Is that just yeah. what we see from our human point of view, whereas, like, that... It's so close to the sun, but really, how could you fly? You can't fly that much closer to the sun. It wouldn't get that much hotter. Right. Like, it's like, if you're flying that close to the sun, chances are... Or, like, um... I know this is just a trope that shows up time and time again where you get so close to the divine wisdom that it rips you apart. Yes. And it looks yes. like, you know, but that's the transmutation of the into the, the rainbow body or whatever. It's like, to yeah. us, it looks yeah. like... The destruction of looks, the ego. Yeah, yeah. to well, us, it looks is, like that guy died. Which but is shamanic initiation. Right. right. You know, the dismemberment and the boiling and the porridge and then being reconstructed. 
Um, Kate Blanchett at the end of uh, the uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Okay. But she wants she wants I'm ruining this for you. People, <laughs> but Spoiler. She's you know she wants the uh, extraterrestrial crystal skull wisdom download, and when she finally gets it, like light comes out of her eyes she and she explodes. Yeah. yeah. Right. You, you, yeah. you can't handle the truth. It's too yeah. big. It's too big. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know the. And there's something about that, right? This, the seeking mind who always wants more, the insatiability, which I think is a characteristic of the mental, mm. versus the contentment of like being present with what is and not needing anything external to that and recognizing you already have everything you need, which is more of a magical actual feeling because there is nothing else and that the mythical tries to maintain in all of the religious trappings and trying to like practice that with you know various types of meditation and prayer etc. The ritual observance of holy days. Trying to remember. I feel like all of the ritual of organized religion is trying to remember the actual unification of the magical. Yeah what's that like the advent calendar is magical or like you know remember like being a kid and like you're old enough to know that Christmas is bullshit but it still feels great, yeah. you know, and you're still looking forward to it, and you're still you still like catch that that hit of of magic whenever it's like, oh, it's that morning, yeah, it's this time well, because it's a dopamine thing, yeah, 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 right, you know. And as a kid, like dopamine is strong. I mean, especially as a teenager, dopamine is not strong, but you know, I guess not. But I kind of but feel that's like disenchantment, exactly. Right there. That's yeah. that, well, teenagers it's, when you like give up on your childhood role models, like you, they you, they disillusioned you. You realize that they're people. Yeah, you're like thinking about it rationally. Well, because you have to individuate. Yeah. You know, you can't keep trying to be somebody who you've grown up around. You know, you have to find your own way. So you have to, like, start ignoring your parents and (laughs) outrightly defying them and throwing away all your mentor, you know, all the people you idolize and stuff like that. I'm authoring my own linear construct now, Mom. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But But the Christmas thing, like, I felt this so potently at our last, like, big extended family Christmas that the kids are all still really into it and the magical consciousness, you know, and then, like, each successive generation of people back out, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, it felt like coming down from a mushroom tree. You know, like how do you maintain like the magic of the heart of it was Possibly so alive. literally given the yeah. mythical Well and the brain, brainwave stuff and whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. but like it's just like the, the novelty of it has worn off. And you're coming, you know, you're grounding back into this reality. You've been through this, you know, and that, that's another of the why time speeds up as we get older. We actually produce less dopamine. And dopamine is, a you know, a marker of time. Is that why we have a cokehead president? He's 72. And he's still, like, he still manages to apparently... That's just, that's just the re- decline of re- That's He's our Nero. Well, yeah, I mean, the guy is sort of, like, lodged in, like, five-year-old magic thinking, you yeah. know? Yeah. My dad's got a knife. Okay, buddy. Thank you. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, it's going to be Christmas every day, I promise you. Yeah. But the, but the decline of dopamine as people get older happens, you know, because we get in routines. Like, dopamine is, a, is generated in response to novelty. You know, it makes the brain spend a little bit faster to figure out what's going on, right? And so you get a lot of it as a kid, a lot of it as a teenager, and then it's like a downhill slope from there. And 
and it's hard to say what's causing is it you know that we're building up routines so that our days are just the same one like the other you know so I'm just gonna quit producing dopamine because nothing new is happening anymore because that I mean and that is happening no matter how much you're traveling and seeing new things and meeting new people you there's a certain amount of repetition you know you've been through the emotional cycles once twice five times 20 times they lose their effect that's why i'm going to die on mars why because you know by the time it's a consumer situation uh-huh. you know by the time you can sort of elect to go to uh-huh. mars it's going to be like well this planet's pretty played yeah. You know, like, I'm 100 now, you know, I've seen all seven continents. I know for a fact whether or not there's a hole in the middle of Antarctica. I've solved that <laughs> to my personal satisfaction. And and this goes back to the, like, striving versus contentment thing, right? Yeah. And a funny story. Of course, by the time I'm 100, you're right, I'll, be, I'll yeah. probably be like, eh, it doesn't matter. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Whatever, don't need to go to Mars. Right? Yeah. Well, but and then but the funny story is a friend of mine, when her son was about five, you know, and they're talking about it. He's like, yeah, I really want to go to Mars. And she's like, yeah, I really like Earth, you know. I think I'm, I think I'm going to stay here. And he's like, yeah, that's fine for girls. Girls can stay on Earth, but boys, boys need to go to Mars. <laughs> Interesting. But there is something about that dichotomy of the um, of the Mother Earth, you know, yeah, and, the, yeah. and the and the feminine and the fecundity of nature that is here and not on Mars, and that just like the pioneering spirit, which is you know a very Yang as opposed to Yin quality. Right. The the uh, when they tag mammals, you know, with radio collars, uh-huh. the male like a male mountain lion has a range with a radius twice the range of the female mountain lion. Interesting. Like they're 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 cruising in yeah. much wider territory. And that's a dopamine thing, right? It's like it's the incentive it's like the uh, yeah. the incentive to get out and investigate uh-huh. a thing. Uh-huh. You know, which is why I think I think that's from what I've read, I think that's related to why you encounter on average, greater rates of substance abuse among men huh. because they're like looking for that stimulus. Huh. Yeah. More. They're looking yeah. for that dope hit. Right. Because we've been, we've been, I mean, and it's the whole ADHD medication thing also. You know, like we've been sedentarized. Yeah. <laughs> Our culture has become very sedentary. And it's like that's not what little boys are made for. Right. Yeah. They got to go run around. In yeah. fact, Bill Thompson said that he, he thought in a more intentionally designed, culture that we would not put people in college between the ages of 18 to 25 hmm. that we would give them basically like lifestyle grants to, mm-hmm. to like go out and develop and explore themselves yeah and then come back into college like at the end of their 20s when yeah. things have settled down and they're ready to like rededicate themselves to that that, that, that period of focused learning yeah that's what my brother said he would do with his kids he's like i would give them fifteen thousand dollars if they did not go to college immediately and just went and traveled the world yeah you know and then i would pay for their college if after that but if they didn't do that I wouldn't pay for their college that's really smart because you I mean, know, but, but yeah. I think it depends on the kid also because like mm-hmm. I was ready man I was an information sponge yeah. like all the way through and went you know took one year off to do the case management thing which is good a real life experience of course but, but I was ready but did you learn another language I you know whatever I took other language classes yeah. but yeah not really yeah. <laughs> but that yeah there's like one thing that we haven't talked about that I want to I want to touch on before we put a fork in this. 
or, or rather like loop it back around to the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. and thus complete the Celtic knot. Nice. And that is, you know, talking about the plurality of time and going to Mars and all this other stuff, I had Jessa Gamble on the show a while ago. I think it was episode 29. And she wrote a book about the circadian rhythm. Mm. And we were talking about what are we going to do with the human organism when we're moving out into space? Because we're our cycles are so intimately... Yes. Do, like they're evolved in response to this particular temporal environment and Mars has a different l day length which yep. means a different second length yep. and like everywhere we go suddenly we're going to have you know like we've got over here is the, the United States dollar and over there is the Australian dollar yeah. and there's the yuan and that, that's going to become the time like there's going to be earth seconds Martian seconds yep, yep. interesting you know yeah. and like how is that going to well even just time zones yeah, yeah like how is that going to relate? I mean, I hope that by the time we have a Martian second that people are living on, that we don't have time zones anymore, that we've managed to, like, use, like, GPS coordinates so that it's a single continuum. Yeah. You know, that we're not as, like, driven by that mental structure of, like, correlating. Right. right. Everyone's got to be paying attention to the same clock tower. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Who? Somebody was telling me about that, a model of time that they were really pushing for. Where it really is just based on, you know, the location of the sun is the time. Mm. You know, and it does, and not relative to where you are, not like when it's straight up ahead, it's noon, but it's like at your measure of longitude. You know, it's measured by longitude, basically. Where, the, where it is noon, you know, that measure of longitude is the time kind of thing. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I just wrote an essay uh, for Uplift Connect on... Uh, a, a criticism of optimization, life optimization, hmm. saying that yeah. you know, basically You're saying decrease your creativity. <laughs> well, yeah, basically that that you know, the more that this is an understandable, uh, like emotional and psychic response to the acceleration of time in a digital yeah. society. That you know, we all are on some level worried that we're going to lose our jobs to the machine, so we have to become more like the machine in order to become more valuable to the economy. More visible. Yeah, well, it's just like the whole time is money, productivity, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. Right, but, but, but it's completely backwards. It's missing yeah. this emergent subjective yeah. thing yeah. where what actually makes, what will be making us economically valuable or what's already, what's, mm. what's already making us economically valuable is the, uh, the soft and creative human skills, you know, empathy, our ability to relate to people, which is is yeah. very hard to quantify. Yep. But you know, but also but what makes something inherently valuable? Right. Yeah. Is well, apparently, whether you can get it done. It's that labor capital thing, right? Yeah. You know, wh whether you can replace all of these people working for you or not. Right. You know, am, are, are you expendable? Yeah. If you're not expendable, then you're valuable. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, but, and, and, I, and I guess I said so that's valuable in a business sense. Right, but but right. the human connection is what makes somebody actually come back to a business, right? Right. You know, it's so valuable in, in that, like, the actual value that underlies the monetary exchange. So there's a total reverse going on right now as the subjective like chirotic dimension of time is, is there, there's like a figure ground reversal where this thing that we've ignored through the entire 
rational mode for the last three, four hundred years is being digested, and like out of that is emerging this sense of like this total proliferation of interest in astrology. Yes, as one example. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we had to cut it when you were talking about the plurality of different ways of measuring time and like you know solar noon and right, like how right, that's going right, to relate right, right. to yeah and, but we wanted to wrap it up somewhere did you yeah, have like yeah. a, <laughs> you know i mean i mean typically we wrap this up by talking about returning to the rhetorical framing of this podcast and as a time capsule project as a digital museum mm-hmm. but it's lately in light of all of this stuff that we've been talking about i'm kind of curious whether that's going to seem relevant <laughs> in which, another which few decades. Right, because the notion of, of wanting to save time. Of having a history. Yeah, well, in one way that we save time is by taking pictures, by writing things down, by saving the information content of time, right? And that's all for the optimization, the productivity, the whatever, getting more, getting more for less, basically. So our kids can live better tomorrow than yeah. we, yeah. Yeah, but to, and I kind of flip that on its head and say that the real way to save time is actually to savor it. Mm. In that the more finely we divide it in order to try to be more productive, the faster it goes by. Yeah. Whereas if we open up the slower moments to actually taste our food <laughs> and feel the sunshine and, you know, like actually experience what's happening rather than just trying to preserve it, mm. that that is real saved time. I mean, it's kind of the same thing in a sense, I guess, because you're preserving it as a memory, but you're not packaging it and removing it by fully experiencing it somehow. Or, you know, in... I don't remember which, again, Castaneda book this is in, but I remember reading these in college, and this part stood out to me. It was him saying, oh, I can't, I'm not going to be able to remember this. Mm-hmm. You know, like all of this yes. stuff in these yes. in these alt- yes. heightened states of awareness. He's like, yes. this is gonna this is gonna be gone. Yeah. And Don Juan says to Castaneda, "No, basically, it's not gone. Like it, you know, you're in a higher state now, but this remains within the developed Nagual body, like yeah. within your yeah. like energy body. This remains, yeah. you know, the effect. The tide can come and go, but yeah. it washed something up on the beach that's still there. Yes. And so I think about that in respect to all of the the peak experiences, all of the profound moments, all of the the like gorgeous intimacies that have not been preserved in our historical record mm-hmm. are still like in the hologram. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. And, and yeah. in theory, accessible. Yeah. And so, it, you know, like if you take this sort of quantum hologram view of things, then recording these conversations for a future that could possibly access the Akashic field and, right. you know, experience this, you know, they're here hanging out with us right now. But, looking but through I a think wormhole. it's all part of the, I mean, in, integration of all the structures, right? Because... Uh, being able to remember a psychedelic journey or a meditative mystical experience and articulate it outside of that experience 
you know, may not necessarily be the goal, but there's value in trying to do it because then you're integrating that experience into your mental everyday structure of consciousness. Right? Right. Yeah. And just by having this conversation, we're solidifying thought patterns and interweaving new thoughts and coming to new realizations that wouldn't have happened otherwise, you know? And so, like, the, the one purpose may be to preserve it, but the other purpose is, like, it's process purpose, you know, not necessarily it's end goal purpose, but mm-hmm. what's emerging by virtue of just doing it. And that what we're doing is a process of trying to integrate the mental with these other realms that we're going to, you know, because like if we have access to the Akashic record at some point in time, we don't need any of our physical records anymore, but we're still going to want to integrate that with the concrete linear space time somehow. Yeah. You know? I mean, presumably, it's like, why do angels keep trying to get into bodies? Yeah. That, because because you know, that's that like... That taste of limitation. In Bohm's language, like, that's all implicit, right? This yeah. is explicit, you know? And so to have... So even if we go back to being able to access the Akashic Record, I still think there's this, like the funnel of consciousness which is so fun you know like you may be able to access it but you're only going to be able to bring back so much right and your dad's going to be like great so you can access the Akashic record <laughs> so what what's the point <laughs> how's that going to make you a living <laughs> yeah yeah does the Akashic record have health insurance <laughs> Well, but Dad, I can look at all of the possible cures for this throughout all time. Yeah, but. Yeah. Well, shit. Carrie, this has been fun. Yeah, it has. Thanks so much for having me on. Or perhaps it will be fun, and we're just remembering a thing that has yet to occur. Perhaps. Maybe we're in the Merlin time, and it's. I'm going to wake up, and this whole conversation is going to happen backwards. <laughs> Let's hope not. Yeah. Gosh. Hey, even more confusing. So where can people uh, find you or find your work? Um, academia.edu is one place I've got a bunch of writings up. I also have a blog, The Texture of Time on WordPress. Um, and those are the, the two main places that my stuff is located. And your book that will... And someday, the, yeah, yeah. Someday is also the texture of time. So the blog is is built of book excerpts. Okay, yeah. Um, which I'm deciding how many to put on there, but yeah, and the and yeah, the book maybe the next few years. Cool. Yeah. Dude, right on. Thanks for being on Future Fossils. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support this show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.